right. Is that on there? You guys hear me okay? No? You can turn it up. That better? Better, better? Okay. So you guys are the faithful. I didn't, I forgot tonight was a Super Bowl. Is it muffled? Okay. I don't, I don't know what's wrong. Rod's fixing it. Better? Is that better? It feels echoey. Whoa. It's really loud. I don't know. It seems loud to me, but better. Hello. We're just going to go with it. All right. So, um, so just as a heads up before I forget, next week we're not meeting. I tried to pick some strategic, strategic dates to, to have breaks, mainly for the workers upstairs. And I thought, oh, next week would be great at the beginning of the year because it's a holiday weekend. And then I and everyone's texting me today, like, are we meeting as the Super Bowl? And so we are, we are here. It's lighter group. That's okay. So tonight we're going to be talking about uh, the atonement. I'm excited about this lesson. Uh, this is a this is going to be a good one, and uh, I hope you're encouraged by it. But let me pray first, and and we'll we'll jump right in. My Father in heaven, we come before you tonight, and uh, with great grateful hearts, because. You have done what we cannot do. You have saved us from our sins. You have atoned for that. You are the perfect Lamb of God who appeased the wrath of God by your substitutionary atonement, Lord. And we, as we reflect on that tonight, I pray that our hearts would grow in, in gratitude and thankfulness and that we would uh, just be encouraged, encouraged to, to love you more fully with all of our hearts. And so with that, we commit this evening to you. I ask for your blessing and your help in teaching. And I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. I just realized I don't have my clicker. Um, I'll go grab it real fast. I'm sorry, guys. We're all off tonight. All right, we're in business, I think, I hope. All right, atonement, start with definition. Uh, the atonement is the work that Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. So a lot of times people would say the atonement is called the heart of the gospel, and I would agree, I would agree with that. 
statement. And so what I want to do tonight, I was trying to figure out like how to tackle this in all of its fullness in one lesson. Um, so my, my goal is to answer really these three main questions. What is the cause of the atonement? Look at the various aspects of that. Why was the atonement necessary? And then what is the result of the atonement? So that's, that's what we're going to seek to answer tonight. Um, and it's hard to talk about that without looking back to what, something we've talked about already when we did our study of Christology of Christ, and that is the offices that Christ holds as prophet, priest, and king. Um, so just as a quick recap, this, this is important because it, it directly relates to, to the atonement. Um, in Protestant circles, when, when we speak of the work of Christ, we often do so in three general terms, and that's prophet, priest, and king. We see these roles in the New Testament. We see their fulfillment in the coming of Christ. And so um, they speak of his role as prophet, as a teacher, right? As priest, as a savior, as our interceder, our mediator. And then as king, as our protector and our ruler. So as a prophet, one of our great needs is, as sinners, it, we have a need for knowledge. We, we do not know what we should know. We do not naturally know God, nor do we understand the spiritual things apart from divine illumination. So we need help in that way. And Jesus meets this need, of course, by revealing to us who God is. Uh, he is our prophet, our teacher. Uh, it is through his own person that we see the God in the flesh. Uh, the Father is fully revealed uh, in the Son, and it is through the gift of the written word of God that we come to know uh, of him in a saving way. And it is the Holy Spirit who illuminates our minds so that we can discern spiritual things and know truth. Uh, he's also our king, right? We need spiritual discipline and guidance and rule. Uh, this is true even when we're saved. We're not autonomous beings. Uh, he made us and we are called to live under his authority. And so whenever we try to uh, take authority for ourselves, it always leads to, to bad things. Um, so even after our conversion, we still rely on Christ as our, as our ruler. And he does, in fact, rule. He reigns right now at the right hand of the Father. And he guides us, he protects us, and he leads his church and his people in righteousness. When we think about the office of priest, this has particular value for tonight. Because as, as sinners, we have a need for salvation. Uh, we're not just merely ignorant of, of God. We're not just merely ignorant of spiritual things. We are also very sinful, and we have rebelled against God, and like sheep have gone astray, we've gone our own way. And Jesus' priestly office is essential to the doctrine of atonement. It's primary, actually. Jesus meets this need as our priest, and he really functions on, on two levels as, as a priest. First, he offers himself up as a sacrifice, thereby providing atonement for our sin. But secondly, he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father in heaven now, thereby guaranteeing our right to be heard by God. The reason we pray, and we pray in Jesus' name, is because he's the one interceding for us. He, he's the one that, uh, that, that the Father hears our prayers through the Son. And so... Uh, in the Old Testament, what you see 
is that the priests made intercession on behalf of the people, uh, on behalf of the people of Israel, and they would um, pray for these sacrifices. They would pray for the people. Uh, the priests offered the sacrifices to God on behalf of the people, and the, the chief sacrifices were made on what was called the Day of Atonement by the high priest. But before the high priest uh, could make these sacrifices for the people, he had to make sacrifices for his own sins, right, before the priest could even do this. And so his sacrifice, just like that of, of the people, had to be repeated annually. But Christ is the one who fulfills this office perfectly because Christ himself was the once-for-all sacrifice. The book of Hebrews talks about this extensively. So what is the cause of the atonement. That's just a little background on the priestly office of Christ and how we, we see the atonement through that office. What's the cause of the atonement? And I would say that the moving cause of the atonement is the good pleasure of God. The good pleasure of God. Um, God's will here is not just arbitrary. He's not, um, it's not just his love. A lot, a lot of times we think of that. It's not just his justice. It is the good pleasure of God bestowed upon us, and it's manifested in love and justice. We see these two things come together. So I would say love and justice equal the cause. Uh, one verse that we might think to uh, that would demonstrate the love of God, we see in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It was God's love as the driving force in, by which we um, see the cause in this way. But also, the justice of God is a cause, and it is seen in passages such as Romans, well, many, but the one I'm going to highlight a lot tonight is Romans 3, 24 through really 26. Um, in this passage, we read that, and are, we are justified by his grace as a gift. Okay, there you see love also. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Okay, this is giving emphasis to that word. We're going to define that a lot tonight. But the justice of God is seen in the propitiationary sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. There's justice again. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And so this, I think, concept or idea guards against um, the idea that God's good pleasure was just some sort of arbitrary will. No, God's good pleasure is just part of his nature. That's who he is. And he's not just, you know, oh, let's just be loving today. No, it's who God is. And this, the atonement is the expression of who God is. And so um, justice, that is to say sin punished, plus love, that is God giving of his son, is the cause of the atonement. In, in Jesus' life and death, what we see is the, the full expression of God's justice and love. Now, what is a propitiation? It's really only mentioned in three passages in the Bible of the New Testament. What does that word mean? Do you know? It satisfies the wrath of God. Who satisfies the wrath of God? Christ, right? And it 
turns the wrath that he has towards sin into favor because that wrath is satisfied. So on the cross, God put his wrath on Jesus. Jesus took the wrath, and in doing so, God's justice was satisfied. That's what you see in Hebrews 9.26, which 9.26 says, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he had appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In other words, he put it away. The right, rightful wrath that God has towards sins could be put away because his wrath was satisfied. Uh, Hebrews 10, 1 through 18 is a, a, a long passage, but here you see again the priestly work of Christ and how it's rooted in the Old Testament, but finds its ultimate expression, ultimate fulfillment in the New Testament. Here we read, For since the law has but a shadow of the things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would have no longer had any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there was a reminder of the sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the books. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, in burnt offerings, and in sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offerings for sins. But what is the purpose of this sacrificial system in the Old Testament? It's, it's but a shadow pointing forward. I was trying to think about, about this uh, a, a picture or a story. Uh, when I was working in law enforcement, I remember going to a call, and it was a, a person who had eluded, done a, a heinous crime, and we were doing a, a grid search, a block search with a canine dog. The dogs are pretty good, but they're not perfect, and he was hitting hard in this area of a backyard house and so you know we were we were looking in the backyard and we walked by the shed 
and I just happened to glance over. The dog went right by the shed. The shed was, was propped open, and I saw a shadow of a body in there. I didn't see the body. I just saw the shadow. And so I was kind of like trying to get him to stop without giving away that I knew so that he would hear. And I got their attention, and I began to, to give commands, essentially, to the shadow. But I knew the shadow was pointing to someone. I knew the shadow was pointing to the substance. And when I gave commands and finally the individual came out of the shed, I didn't care what the shadow did anymore. My focus was on the substance, the person to whom the shadow pointed to. And I think that's the point here, that the substance of the shadow is Christ. And so we're not to look back and, and, and memorialize the law when you have Christ, the fulfillment of that law. Christ fulfilled what we have failed to fill. And so this sacrificial system is, is a type or a picture of the work that the Lord would accomplish on the cross. And the Old Testament system exposed our problem, but it, it did, the Old Testament system did not correct our need. Well, Christ corrected our need. Christ fixed our problem. And so I think this passage in Hebrews sheds some light on this, and it also points forward to, to Christ as the ultimate sacrifice. Um, once I saw that person, I, don't, I didn't care what the shadow did. The shadow could have danced and ran away. I didn't care. I was looking at the person because that's what matters. And so now we look back, we look to Christ now, not dismissing his, his law in any sort of way, but understanding that those requirements that are demanded in the law find their fulfillment in Christ. And so we look to Christ, we rely on Christ, we follow Christ to do what we can't. So it's kind of like in the Old Testament, it's like uh, psychiatry, right? They, they can help identify guilt, but it cannot remove the guilt, right? Um, and sometimes it can even, I suppose, remove the feelings of guilt, but it can't remove the actual guilt. Uh, and only Christ is the one who, who not only can remove the feelings of sin that sin produces, but it can also remove the actual sin itself because that sin has been placed on the Lord and he has bore it on our behalf. So God could not just welcome us back into fellowship without punishing sin. God would be unjust if he did not punish sin. And God stored up the punishment for sin and he put it upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and by doing so, his wrath was poured out on the Son. Now this leads us then to the necessity of the atonement. We need the atonement. It's necessary. It's absolutely necessary, I would argue. Why, can you guess? Why is the atonement necessary? Apart from Christ, do we have any hope of being saved? Why not? What would be required? If, if, if we dismiss Christ, what is required of us to be saved? Yeah. Have any of you done that for one minute of one day, even today? No, we, ha we haven't. Uh, I mean, it, cause it, because you look at like the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just your external behavior. That's what Jesus so rightly criticized the Pharisees for. Externally, they had a form of godliness for sure. They knew the law, they memorized the Old Testament, they, they went through the motions, but what didn't they do? 
They didn't believe in their heart. Uh, their life did not adore the word of God. So it's not just our external behavior, it's also our mind, our thoughts, our hearts, our affections. All of those things are tainted by sin. That's what we looked at with the, the doctrine of man. Our, our whole being is corrupted by sin. And so, no, we, we haven't come close to fulfilling the law's demands upon our life. Only in Christ can we, can we be called righteous, and it's not our own. So, uh, and, and I guess in, in a sense you might say um, it wasn't necessary, but only in this way. It wasn't necessary for God to save anybody, okay? You can say that. He did not save the angels who rebelled, right? He didn't save them. And so I think when we appreciate the privilege that we have, uh, then, then we will respect God so much more because he doesn't owe us anything but punishment for our sins. He doesn't owe us anything but punishment. God is under no obligation to us to open up a way of redemption for disobedient fallen humanity. He, he's under no obligation to do that. He could, with just perfect justice, have left us in our fallen state and judged us rightly and he would be right to do that. His justice would, would, would be on full display. But as a consequence of God's decision to save humanity, I, I think that by necessity makes the atonement necessary. And so it's right to call it necessary because he has decided to save humanity, because out of his good will, he's decided to save us, save God's people, that necessitates the atonement. Uh, in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, if it be possible, what? Let this cup pass, right? If it be possible, right? This indicates that uh, it was not possible for there to be another way except by the way in which Christ died, death on a cross. There was no other way. This was the only way. If Jesus was going to accomplish the, the, the work that the Father had sent him to do, and if people were going to be redeemed by God, then it was necessary that he be the one to atone for those sins. And the only way for our sins to be forgiven was for someone, Jesus, who was perfect and sinless to pay for them, to pay the price. So the necessity of Christ's obedience, that's one part. Two is the necessity of Christ's sufferings. So in his obedience, he obeyed the requirements of the law in our place and obeyed the will of God as our representative. The necessity of Christ's suffering, he, that means he took the penalty due for our sins as a result and died for our sins. He was our representative and he failed where Adam, or he succeeded where Adam failed. And he suffered the, the, the penalty for that sin. So it's seen in his obedience and in his suffering. This moves to the nature of the atonement. Uh, just as, as the second Adam, Jesus came as a second Adam, but in this case, living in perfect obedience. And so when you look at the, the life of Christ and the, the cross, what we see is that there was physical pain. In other words, he, he bore uh, the beating, the flogging, the crucifixion. There was the agony of abandonment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? There is the pain of bearing the wrath of God upon Christ. There is the pain of the, the weight of all of our sins, past, present, and future. 
And so we see both the, in, in the life of Christ, both the active and passive obedience of the Lord. Christ's obedience was active in the sense that his actions conformed fully to the will of God. But also you see the passive obedience in that his choice was to yield to God and receive mankind's punishment on his behalf. And there's in fact overlap of both of these throughout his life. We see in in Christ both active and passive obedience. Had Jesus only offered himself as a sacrifice and earned our salvation, this would only be partial salvation. If there's not the imputation of his righteousness, then we're still lacking. Our, Our guilt can be removed, but we would just go back to a neutral status, kind of like Adam would have been before the fall in the garden. But then we would do what? Sin again, right? This, this one thing, it's one thing to have your guilt removed or taken away, but we also need to be credited the perfect righteousness of fulfilling God's demands of the law. And so this is, this is the real problem. We need both forgiveness of sins and also, unless your deeds succeed those of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you have fulfilled the, the righteousness that the law demands, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so the atonement includes both the active obedience and passive obedience of Christ. These are important concepts to our understanding. And these two ideas, I think, accompany each other at every point in the life of Jesus. So it was part of Christ's active obedience in that he subjected himself voluntarily to suffer death. This is what you see, for example, in John ten eighteen which says, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And then on the other hand, it was part of Christ's passive obedience that he lived in subjection to the law, moving, uh, uh, moving about in the form of a servant, I think constituted an important part of his suffering. And so I think we should see these two, these two concepts of active and passive obedience as complementary parts of, of the organic whole. And you see both types reflected in the life of Christ. Definition, propitiation. We said it has to do with sacrifices and refers to what Jesus accomplished in relation to us. In other words, it relates to God. So we can say that by his death, Jesus appeased the wrath of the Father against sin and thus made it possible for God to be favorable toward us. See examples of this in Romans 3, Hebrews 2, 1 John 2 through 1. So the idea of, oh, excuse me, the idea of um, propitiation, I think, is most clearly seen and observed in the Old Testament sacrificial system. There we see that through sacrifices, sinful man or woman could not approach God. There had to be the shedding. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Uh, Sin requires death, right? It highlights that sin means death. The Old Testament system teaches that the death of another, though, can take place. We start to see that happening. And so the entirety of the system, as I said already, is, is a shadow that pointed forward to Christ, the once for all sacrifice. And so the progression is one sacrifice for one individual, one sacrifice for one family, one sacrifice for one nation, one sacrifice for the world. 
And Jesus is the one and ultimate sacrifice which satisfied fully the wrath of God once for all regarding our sinfulness. Now, there are only uh, four texts that actually use the word propitiation. The first is in uh, Romans 3, 23 through 26. Now, I already read this one, but in that, in that passage, what I think is also important is the context of that because the preceding chapters bring it into fuller, uh, a fuller emphasis. So Romans 1 states that the wrath of God is against all ungodliness, all ungodliness, all unrighteousness. That's what you see in Romans 1. And then Romans 2 presents the question, is anyone exempt? Is anyone exempt from this? And the answer is no, no one is exempt. And then you get into Romans 3, it says all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wrath of God is directed against us because of our sin, because of our sin, but it has now been quenched by God's action through the death of Christ. So you're starting to see the, the propitiation and the justice that God demands for sin. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What's going on there? Well, I think the point is that Jesus became one with humanity in order to represent them. That goes back to that federal headship idea as a faithful high priest to represent those, his people. And more specific, specifically, Jesus is, is not only the true high priest, he is actually a merciful high priest. Mercy means to show favor to the one who does not deserve it. He showed mercy and he did the role of a priest. 1 John 2, 1 through 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And again, in 1 John 4, 10, he says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So four, four counts of this. So just as a priest turns away God's wrath, so Jesus ultimately turns away the Father's wrath and brings his work forward as the sure ground by which we may approach God and be assured of his favor. And Jesus is the one who provides this. So I think this... Um, kind of triangle picture is, is helpful. I don't know if it is to you. This was in James Boyce's uh, systematic theology. I saw this and I thought it was kind of helpful. I added a few things to it. But what I want you to see is the relationship of things here. And I think this helps you understand it more. Um, Romans 3, 24 through 25 says that they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to, re- to be received by faith. And so propitiation, which way is the arrow pointing toward God, right? It's pointing up toward God. This is the relationship here. Jesus, by becoming a perfect sacrifice, propitiated, satisfied the wrath of God. Jesus did that. He satisfied the wrath of God. Well, what does that then produce for us? Well, because of that, because that wrath is satisfied, God can now look down to us, downward, and, and, and he can show justification to us. This, re, this justification refers to something that God does to us. We are, we are justified by grace on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. And so then also the merits of Christ, the merits of Christ have then been given to us or credited to us. In other words, 
Our account is empty, but in Christ it becomes full of the riches of Christ's life. And so the God, the Father, can now look at you and look at me as believers and not just see a forgiven individual, but a righteous individual. Not based on us, but on him and his works. And then you have redemption, and this arrow points toward us. This is what Christ does for us. He redeems us. Jesus did this for his people. He redeemed us, and he sets us free from the slave market of sin. He purchases us back. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were slaves to sin, and he buys us back. He, he does that work. And we are justified on the basis of his work. And this idea of expiation is the, the removal of our sin. He removes it, puts it upon himself, offers himself as a sacrifice that appeases God the Father. God the Father can now look at us and credit us with Christ's righteousness and forgive and justify the believer. It's, a, it's, a, it's beautiful. This, is a, this should make you want to dance because we cannot do this. If we are left to ourselves, we're in deep trouble. But in Christ, we find salvation. So we're saved on two grounds. First is the righteousness of Christ applied to all who put their faith in him. And the second is that Christ satisfied the negative sanctions of the law in his sacrificial death on the cross for us. That's what we get. Penal substitution. I, you know, I've never had a problem with this. Apparently, some people do. This word penal simply means related to punishment for offenses. And substitution means the act of a person taking the place of another. So you put these two words together. Penal substitution is, by definition, the act of a person taking the punishment for someone else's offenses. In Christian theology, Jesus Christ is the substitute. And the punishment he took at the cross was ours based on our sin. Okay, you see examples of this in Genesis, Exodus, Isaiah, many more. But penal substitution, I think, is clearly taught in the Bible. In fact, much of what God did prior to Jesus' ministry was a foreshadow of this very idea and concept. Uh, you see it in the very beginning of sin in Genesis chapter 3. What, what, what happened right after they sinned? What act occurred? Remember, Yeah, they were covered with animal skins to cover their nakedness. This is a sacrifice. This is the first reference to death. In, in this case, it was an animal, uh, other than God pronouncing that it would happen. But this is the first case of it. So it's, it's, this skin is being used to cover, or you might say atone, for their sins. Exodus twelve thirteen, you have the Exodus account, right? And you have the Passover. What's happening there? What did they put above the doorpost? blood right and God's spirit passed over the homes that are covered or atoned by the blood of the sacrifice God requires blood for atonement and in Exodus 29 41 42 you have the requirement of blood for an atonement even the descriptions of uh, of the Messiah in Isaiah 53 that that messianic passage it says that his suffering is meant to heal our wounds and the fact that the Messiah was to be crushed for our iniquities, in verse 5 of Isaiah 53, I think is a distinct reference to penal substitution. In what way then is he going to be crushed or suffer? And so God's mercy allows Jesus to take the punishment that, 
that we deserve for our sins. And as a result, Jesus' sacrifice serves as a substitute for anyone who will accept it. And so in this uh, very direct sense, Jesus is exchanged for us as the recipient of death's penalty. Christ's death, our need, okay? Our need, we see many things. One, we deserve to die as a penalty for our own sin. We deserve to bear God's wrath against us. We are separated from God by our sins. We are in bondage to sin and to Satan. Question, is this what you hear of our need in most churches today? Sin is not even mentioned half the time. We say things like people made mistakes. Um, God's wrath is, is, a, is an attribute of God. It's a necessary attribute, or God is unjust, and yet you don't hear about that either. You don't hear about our, our bondage. God just doesn't want you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. I mean, the, the emphasis of, of, of so many Christians today is so, is so off. If you don't rightly present our need, you will never cherish the Savior. But when you see sin for what it is, you see how God views sin, how God hates sins, and you realize you are wrapped in it. You are wrapped in sin as, as tightly as plastic wrap is to glass. That's how tight it is on you. When you see that, you come to that place, you realize you're in a desperate situation and that you see the mercy and grace and love of God and that he provided a way out of this in his son. Because it is in Christ's death that meets our very need. In Christ's death, we have sacrifice. He died as our sacrifice. We have propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God, the rightful wrath of God. He provided reconciliation. He reconciled us to God. We were separate, but now we can brought, be brought near. He provided our redemption. He redeemed us out of the bondage of sin. We're not slaves to sin anymore. We're free from that. Those shackles have been freed because of Christ. It's very important, I think, that, that, that preaching and teaching emphasizes the things the Bible emphasizes. I think it's also important that we use the language that the Bible uses because I think it can distort our understanding of things and, and, and keep people from seeing the thing they need the most. One of, the, one of my favorite passages is 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is just as a tip um, I think it's really helpful and when, we, when we think about evangelism in the gospel is to pick some passages that, that talk about the gospel in its fullness and memorize them. And then when you're in that kind of uh, situation where you're, you're feeling stressed, and it's like, I don't know what to say right now, you know, you can just default back to what the word of God says and say, okay, just walk through this passage. 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is a passage that I use in my own life in terms of evangelism. It says, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Okay, what does that mean? I'm talking to someone. What do I mean? Well, for our sake, okay, we need something. We are, we are fallen. We are sinners. We, we have not met God's standards. We haven't met it for one minute of one day if we 
carefully analyze our life, we'll realize that we are, are, are missing the mark. But for our sake, he made him. Who's him? The Lord Jesus Christ. God sent the Son in the flesh. He's fully God, fully man, and he did what we could not do. He made him who knew no sin. He was sinless. He lived a, a perfect and, and a sinless life. He, he followed the law at every point from the moment he came here. And in him, we have, uh, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him, in him means faith. It means belief. It means submission to him. It means lordship. We, we give ourselves to him. In him, we might become the righteousness of Christ and that becomes applied by faith. How do we become righteous? His life is credited to us. We call this the great exchange. We have all that is wrong with us given to Christ and all that is right with Christ credited to us. Okay? Think about it in those terms. And so don't be intimidated to evangelize, but in fact, take God's word, memorize it in your mind and in your heart, and then in your moment when it matters, repeat it back. And then you can, you can just walk them through these steps. So Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life that is now credited to the believer's lives. He died a sinner's death that paid the penalty that you and I deserve. He overcame man's separation from God and that, that sin caused us and he has endured the cross so that we can enjoy unimaginable blessings of heaven for all eternity. Right? And, and we, can, we can share this. Do you want that? You know, is this, is this the life you want? Or do you want to remain in your trespasses and sin? Do you want to remain separated from God? No, you don't have to. Repent. Believe upon the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus takes away from us all of our unrighteousness. Jesus takes away all of our sins, past, present, and future. You don't have to live on the burden of that guilt. He takes it away. He takes away our guilty verdict before God. If you're standing in a courtroom, you are guilty. You are guilty. But he removes that verdict by justification. The, the punishment that we deserve, the penalty that we deserve, he bore it for us. Our alienation from God is no longer anymore because Jesus took it for us. And in exchange, he gave us his perfect righteousness. Your account is empty, guess what? Now it's full. His complete and sinless life is, is credited to us. His just and innocent verdict is given to us. We're declared, we're declared not guilty. We're declared innocent. The reward that he earned is given to us as well. We are adopted into God's family. We're called his children. This is, this is what we get. This is the atonement of Christ applied, applied to his people. Now, what's the extent of God's atonement? In other words, who did Christ die for? All who believe. Is it the whole world? He died not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. What, what do you think about that? Uh, 
yeah, I'm kind of poking at you guys. I agree. But um, I just like, like to live in that tension for a minute because this is really debated and people have strong feelings about this. Um, and you may maybe even disagree tonight. I still love you, but this is what I understand the extent of the atonement to be a definite atonement, uh, an actual atonement. So I believe that Christ died for the purpose of actually and certainly saving the elect and the elect only. We don't know who they are. We give the gospel to everybody, and I let God work that out. Not me. It's not my job to work that out. In fact, if you're trying to work that out, there's something wrong in your theology and what you're doing. Um, this debate is sometimes you hear, are you Calvinist, are you Arminian, right, or that, 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 sort, of, that sort of terminology. Sometimes this is, term is used as called a limited atonement. Um, they get this from the TULIP acronym. If you don't know what that means, you can talk about it later. But uh, I, don't, I don't actually like the word limited. I prefer definite atonement. Actually, historically, Reformed theologians, they didn't use the word limited atonement. We, we did that to make a cool acronym. But the reality is they understood it to be a definite atonement. And they make that, uh, that definition to distinguish it from an indefinite atonement. And, and I prefer that because the issue is not really about the value of the atonement. The, the value of the atonement is, is incredible. And I would say the value of the atonement actually benefited the whole world, indeed, all of it, but just not all in the same way. And so when we say that the atonement of Christ is definite or, or limited, what we mean is that the atonement was actually limited in its efficacy, in other words, to certain groups of people, but it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. Does that make sense? So the atonement was specific for who it covered, that is to say God's people. The atonement was substitutionary in the sense that he actually bore their sins, not just a potentially, I just, he just did this to potentially save you. No, he actually bore your sins. And the atonement was accomplished by what God intended it to do, which is to justify many. Now universalism would say that Jesus died effectually for the whole world, for all the people. Therefore, in their understanding, which is deeply flawed and wrong and unorthodox and not Christian at all, they would say that he died for everyone's sins, therefore everyone is saved. This is, I would say, a minute viewpoint, um, and it's usually only reflected in the most liberal of churches that aren't even real churches in my mind. But some people do hold that, we would, of course, say both, both camps of Arminian and Calvinism would say, no, that's false. That's, that's totally wrong. But many evangelicals really do struggle with this idea of definite atonement position. And I would just say, for me, this is the question I would ask is, um, did Christ die merely hoping that people would take advantage of the opportunity? Or did he die knowing that they would? Did he, does he, did he die knowing his people? Um, John six sixty four, Jesus says, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. He knew. We don't, but he knew. John six thirty seven says, All that the Father gives me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So I would say that Christ was 
acutely conscious as he prepared to do the work of redemption that he knew that he knew he was doing it for the ones whom the Father had given him and it was not going to be an exercise in futility. And so while uh, there is room for disagreement here, I think that what, what is clear, at least to me, is that Christ's atoning work on the cross was done with a definite purpose in mind to redeem for God a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in whom he knows. And so I believe that the atonement was specific for who it covered, which you would say is God's people. It was substitutionary in nature and that he actually bore their sins, not potentially bore their sins. It's not double jeopardy. He actually bore their sins once and it was satisfied and therefore not to be punished again. And it actually accomplished what God intended it to accomplish, which was to justify many. What happens if Christ actually bore our sins and then we don't uh, believe upon him and then we're also judged for our sins? So Christ is judged for our sins and we're judged for our sins? That's a double jeopardy, right? That's, a, that's punishing twice. I think he, he was punished once for the sins of those who would believe. So Christ died not just to make uh, justification a possibility, but actually to justify those he died for. Christ died to save God's people, not just simply to make them savable. And so with, with that said, I will, I will balance it with this. I do not believe in any sort of way that we are ever called to pre-screen the hearers of the gospel message. That, that is not at all the, 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 the emphasis of scripture. And I do not intend ever to, to delve into you know, um, who are the elect and for whom Jesus may or may not have died and, you know, try to figure that out. No, th those discussions, I think, just totally distract us from the goal of evangelism. The, the truth is we have no idea who will believe and who will not believe. There are people who I thought would never believe and now today believe. Okay, we don't know. God does that work. God does it all. Therefore, our job is simply to proclaim the gospel to all and we let God sort that all out we can say and we can hold in one hand the sovereignty of God and salvation and say it is a hundred percent God God alone saves the sinner God does all the work God applies his righteousness God does the forgiving you in and of yourself can do nothing but throw yourself at the mercy of God and in the other hand I can say with an equal authority that unless you repent and unless you, by an action of your own will, believe upon Christ and repent of your sins, that you will go to hell, and it is your, it's your fault. It's your responsibility. How does that balance itself out? I don't know. I let God sort that out, but that is what we're called to do. And here's the thing. This gives us, I think, for me, it, this, this did more for my evangelism than anything else. Because in the past, when I was a new Christian, I think before I really understood the extent of the atonement, I would kind of think that if I, didn't, if I didn't say this interaction, this, the gospel perfectly, or if, if I fumbled somehow and, and, and didn't uh, just perfectly say everything just right, then somehow their response was on, on me. That I could, I could be the one who's 
who's causing this person to stumble because I didn't do it just right. So then I would just didn't evangelize anybody. I was too scared to. I was afraid that I would mess it up. But once I realized that salvation is God's work, not mine, it freed me to tell everybody because I realized that I just need to be faithful. God has only called us to be faithful. He's the one that does that work. And so then I, all of a sudden I'm telling a lot of people about it, and I'm, and, and I'm sure I don't always do it perfectly, but I'm relying on God. I'm praying for his help. I'm applying the scriptures. It, it challenges me to know the scriptures more deeply and better, and I'm telling more people, and, and the kingdom is, is expanding by those means out of faithfulness to his word and to his calling on my life. And I let God sort out who he brings in and not. Questions on that? Yes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, good. Any other thoughts? All right. Um, in Christ is an important term. Uh, I, I think we could do a whole series on what, what it means to be in Christ. There is a lot that the Bible says about that. Um, but, but it should be clear to us, I hope, that outside of Christ, there, there, is, there is no lasting hope. And so what our call is to call people to be in Christ, to believe in Christ. Uh, the atonement is that which brings us into fellowship with God, and it's by being in Christ. It's key. By saving faith in Christ, we are brought in. And outside of him, there's no spiritual blessings. There's no redemption. There's no forgiveness of sins. There's only condemnation. There, there's a sinful nature, and that sinful nature causes us to be separated from God and to incur his wrath. There's no salvation apart from Christ. There's no eternal life in heaven apart from Christ. I mean, this is the message of the Bible. Um, perhaps people don't want to say that or say it that bluntly, but that is what the Bible teaches. But in Christ, we have every spiritual blessings. 
Go read Ephesians 1. I mean, that is a rich chapter that talks about this. Ephesians 1.3, we have every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. In, in Romans 8.2, we, we see no condemnation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are a new creation. 2 Timothy 2.10, we have salvation. 1 John 5.11, we have eternal life. What would keep you from Christ? I, I don't, I don't, I just have to keep saying that to people. What would keep you from that? What is the thing that would keep us from, from Jesus? Why, why would you not want this for your life? What, what is the thing you're hanging on to? What do you think you're going to accomplish apart from him? Um, these are questions I think we need to become comfortable asking again. And, and I read a lot of dead guys and this is like the world and waters they swam in. They just were always saying these things to people. And I think it provoked people to actually think deeply about it. And today we, we don't really talk about theology. We don't really talk about the riches of Christ. We, we talk about like happiness, you know, or, you know, just being happy or finding joy or inner peace. Those are all secondary things to being in Christ. You do have happiness, you do have inner peace, but you only have that by first being in Christ, by first having your sins forgiven, by first having redemption applied, by first being justified by God. You get those as a secondary thing, not a primary thing. But when we seek the secondary things as primary things, we lose, we lose it all. And so it's important that we keep these things in perspective and, and we're looking at it rightly. I think this, this truth shed light on other truths the nature of, of Christ's sacrifice, I think, throws light on things such as God's attributes. There's a tendency that we have to, to emphasize one attribute over the others. For example, love is not the only attribute of God. We've already kind of touched on this in the past, but we always have a tendency, I think, to want to emphasize one attribute, but at the expense of others. Propitiation reminds us that God is, is loving, in fact, but he is also wrathful towards sin, as well as loving. He's both, okay? And it enhances our, I think, appreciation for God's love. If you only look at God as loving and not wrathful, you don't appreciate God's love as fully as you ought to because it demonstrates that God's love is not just some feeling, indulgent feeling. That's, that's how humans often love, Right? That's how Hallmark loves and sappy love stories. That's how they love, but that is not biblical love. Rather, it's an intense, demanding, holy love that's willing to pay the greatest price to save the ones whom he loved. That's biblical love. So it enhances that, but you only see that when it's compared to the justice and wrath of God. So I think the atonement highlights the attributes of God in the fullest sense. I think this is why the angels marvel at God and us because they get to see this played out in real time with his people. Secondly, it highlights the nature of our dilemma. Propitiation is a reminder that, that God's wrath is real. Not, it's real. And without Christ, we may um, expect to feel the full force of that wrath unless we become partakers in Christ's salvation. It emphasizes our need, and what our need is is redemption. We, we, we see that, and, 
it emphasizes that need. We also see in, in its fullest sense the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Only one who is both human and divine in nature can make a satisfying propitiation, right? A mere human cannot do this. We see that animals cannot do this. You and I cannot do this. It, so it brings uh, light and clarity on the person of Jesus. He was fully God and fully man. Jesus is entirely unique. And nobody else can make appeasement to God but Christ. It shows our need, only Christ. It is by his humanity and his deity that we have life. It sheds light on the true nature of the gospel. The gospel is not just about, you know, new possibilities or, like I said, achieving joy and fullness in life. It's not just about living your best life. It's not about those things. It's something much deeper than that, much deeper than that. It's much deeper, something much greater has been done, something that is relating to God and us. The deepest of all human problems is the problem that we have with our relationship to our maker. And only Christ can unite us to God. And, and, and nothing else will do that. And so if we don't promote Christ, we promote a false gospel. If we don't promote Christ, we promote a false gospel. This reminds me of, of Mike's sermon this morning. It's good to want great things for your kids. But none of that matters. None of that matters if they don't know the Lord. Like we, that should be our emphasis. Everything else that we desire in life should come secondary to that. And everything else that is secondary is enhanced and made better by being in Christ. So you get both, but you don't get any of it without the first. It also sheds light on Christian ethics Paul says the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that the one who has died for all, therefore all have died and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 1 Corinthians five fourteen and 15. We, we love him because he first loved us. He loved us first. And we are then drawn and compelled to love him in return. And this love compels us to ethical living. Ethics matter. And, and um, we're called to live lives that are consistent with biblical truth to God's law, uh, that are consistent with, with the gospel. And this truth and this understanding of what Christ has done for us should affect everything. All of Christ for all of life. This, this should shape our families. It should shape our culture. It should shape our politics. It should shape our churches. It should shape and touch everything. We, we don't have a truncated view of Christ and of truth and of the gospel. It, it changes everything. And I think we've lost that vision a little bit. We, we, we've been content to just have church, but then we're no longer involved in the culture. We're no longer involved in politics. We no longer make beautiful things. We're no longer involved in performing arts. We're no longer involved in producing great films and great books. We used to dominate all of those things. And I think as people were more shaped by the reality of these truths, and we've, we've lost that, we need to recapture that. 
We need to influence the, the culture around us. And in this way, this is what I mean, it, the gospel benefits the whole world in that sense. It makes it better. We make it better as believers. All right. It's most of my lecturing, so we'll move to a few questions. Feel free to ask your own questions. You guys usually are quiet, so I mix up my own sometimes, so to help pro- provoke a little bit. How about this one? <clears throat> what kind of God would be so vengeful as to require a blood sacrifice for reconciliation with human beings? What's he really saying there? Yeah, God's mean. The mean God. What do you say? Just, vengeful. Okay. Expand on that a little bit. Sounds mean to me. I'm just going to play... I'm going to play the opposite now. Good. How about this, though? Um, Surely you have kids, right? This is for everyone. I'm not going to pick just on George. You have kids. Your kids mess up. Okay, they won't use the word sin, so they'll say something like, they mess up sometimes, right? We all understand that. You don't just, like, kill them, do you, for, for making a mistake? Isn't that, isn't that a little extreme? Yeah, no, good. That, yes. Yeah, and I, I, bingo, exactly. I I think you guys nailed both of the issues. One, we're looking at this horizontally, not vertically. And and our view vertically is very shallow. Most people, I think, view God as just a little bit better version of themselves, which is so distorted. 
so distorted, which is why I think one of the best things we can do if we really want to grow is study the attributes of God. We need to enlarge our understanding of who God is. We need to have a bigger picture of what his holiness really means. Um, and the punishment fits the crime, right? You know, if I, if I commit a crime, uh, you know, against you and I do something mean, that will hinder our relationship and there, there may be consequences to that. If I commit a, a, a state-level crime or a felony crime, there'll be a more severe punishment. Uh, if I go and, um, you know, am a spy for China, well, it could be treason, right? The, the consequences fit, fit the crime. Well, just take that ladder all the way up to the top. What's the punishment when you do a crime against the eternal, holy God? You have an eternal punishment too, right? But what we don't ever, we can never seem to get there because our view of God is so low. We don't, we don't understand that. And um, you know, I, before I really, I think, had a better understanding of of who God is, who His nature is, who what His attributes are, I did view sin differently. I acknowledged it, and I, I even acknowledged that I needed it. I needed forgiveness and that I was a sinner, but I didn't realize how sinful I was until, until I grew in these areas. So I think it's a really worthy pursuit is to, is to understand God more fully, who he is, who his nature is. You know, many people, they, they just prefer a God strictly in terms of attributes they like, love, grace, mercy, and they very much dislike the other attributes, such as his justice, his wrath. They don't want to talk about those things. And I think when Paul um, explored the mystery of the cross, he said that God is both just and the justifier, right? You see the fullness of, of his deity in Romans 3.26, and he is, the, he is just and the justifier. And so we can grasp this idea, I think, by making distinctions in some way of, of our, our indebtedness, how much we're indebted actually. When we sin against God, we ensure a, a moral eternal debt that we cannot pay. And God's law imposes an obligation to that because he is just. He, he would be unjust to not punish sin. Just as a judge would be unjust to not uh, uh, make a verdict, a guilty verdict against someone who is guilty and by which there's evidence to support that, right? And so uh, we, we are called to meet the obligation of, of God's law, and which is perfection, because God is perfect. And so if we sin, even once, we become indebtors, um, and we incur a moral debt to an eternal holy God that we cannot pay. And so, yeah, this had to be necessary. This wasn't extreme. This is, this is the standard that is necessary, but we don't think in those terms very much, do we? Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah, we're vicious. These are these are great things to think about, and <clears throat> I don't like throw up these these kind of questions just to be you know a pest or something, but because these are real people, not this guy obviously, but these questions are real questions. People ask these questions, and they're not stupid questions. They're they're good and legitimate questions, and they deserve an answer. We and we should be able to think through this theologically and provide that for them. Now they may not accept our answer, but there is an answer for them. And it's not a dumb answer. They just might not like it. And um, yeah, I mean, the truth is, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemy, he died for us. Okay? So what do you do with that? You know, you're an enemy of God. And most people, and that's the thing too, like they don't even see themselves that way. I'm not an enemy. I I don't hate your Christian God. You know, I might not just say, yeah, you do. But the truth is they do, whether they realize that or not. And, um, and they, they need to love him. And they won't love him until they acknowledge their sin and they see the pardon that they have in Christ. Last question. There's more, but we'll stop here because we're running out of time. If you will never pay for your sins, why not continue to sin? It's kind of like communion. We are we to take communion flippantly? Hopefully not. Yeah, you know we're to examine ourselves. We try to be consistent and say that when we do communion for that very purpose. Because if we're not, we're making a mockery of His life and death and His atonement. We're making a mockery of it. It's not right. So it's it's important. Um, how about this? Uh, grace is good, isn't it? If I sin, don't I just get more grace? Shouldn't I want more grace? So shouldn't I just sin and then get more grace? <laughs> yeah. Yes, there is. Yeah, I know. Yeah. There's a lot of plagiarism. Uh, a lot of the authors plagiarize the Old Testament and they repeat it. <laughs> John in Revelation kind of does that. Yep.
Yeah, Christians still sin. We sin. We fall into sin, sometimes for extended periods of time. But this is getting into a different topic, which we're going to approach, is what is a Christian, right? And what does a Christian life look like? Um, that will be a good one to discuss. But I think for, for now, I, I'll say this. Believers and unbelievers alike both sin, and they still sin. Even when we're redeemed, we still fall into sin. The difference between those two people are one hates their sin, and one loves it. Okay, if you're a Christian, you don't love your sin, you hate it. You still do it, and, and, and we, we grieve over it, because the Spirit of God is in us, and it, and it convicts us. We, we don't want to sin. If, if you are looking to sin, like this dude, that's a problem. Yet your, your heart is not right before God. You should not be looking for reasons to, to, to sin and make a mockery of God. We, we were saved unto good works. We were saved unto good works, not to live debauchery lives. All right, this is good. I like discussion. I wish we had time to do more. But let me end in prayer, and I'll, like usual, hang out and happy to chat with you and answer questions. Father in heaven, we, we thank you uh, for, for the work of redemption and salvation, for the atonement. Thank you that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Lord, what a, what a precious truth. We, we thank you for that. I pray that we, our hearts would be enlarged to you, that we would have more affection, deeper affection for you. Lord, also give us a, a desire and a heart to share the good news with others, to to not become dull in ear and heart to these things, that we would be uh, enriched by them and be excited. Uh, help us to remember our first love when we were first redeemed, the excitement that we had, that we would continue and not lose our zeal, that we wouldn't uh, lose our, our, our desire to, to share the good news with all. Lord, help us and keep us in that uh, and, and give us opportunity to tell others about your amazing son jesus christ who has atoned for our sins and it's in his name that we pray amen